everyone. I'm Alex. And I'm Brandon. Hey, Brandon, do you remember when Ted Cruz could go to Cancun without having to answer any questions about why he was leaving his disaster ridden state during a crisis? Do you remember Polly Sai? <laughs> Ted Cruz goes on vacation to Mexico, then he blames his daughter for going to Mexico. Ted Cruz! <laughs> Ted Cruz! Sorry. Hey, welcome everybody, it's Remember Polly Side With Ted Cruz! And Alex and Brandon, the only podcast where you can listen to two brothers pontificate, ramble, and chat for a whole hour or more. I have have to admit to everybody that Ted Cruz, unfortunately, is not appearing on the show today. So I I shouldn't have gotten everyone's hopes up. We really should have reached out to Ted. You know, he's he's such an incredible politician. Um, it, we could start with that. I mean, I, I just I think it's kind of funny. Um, obviously, what's going on in Texas right now, there's nothing hilarious about it. It's freaking cold. I mean, it is historically cold. It has been that cold before, but not for many, many, many decades. And obviously, you know, they were completely thrown off by this Arctic blast that is coating much of the country right now. We happen to be in Corvallis um, in a relatively warm spot, but Brandon, I believe you had some pretty good snow up there in portland yeah i think the arctic air that pushed into texas actually first started uh by hitting oregon and we did yeah we got a lot of snow i think here in portland in the in the southwest we got about eight inches and there were times and it was like alternating between sleet and then freezing rain especially near the end and yeah there were areas in oregon that got a lot of freezing rain many tens of thousands of people without power there are still actually here in oregon about thirty thousand people who still don't have power um so it hit us pretty hard before reaching into texas and yeah you're right like every single county in texas and texas is a very very large state by the way it's humongous every single county was under a winter weather warning um, when this started and they are still um, trying to make their way out of it. It's impacted a lot of people and you're right. It's no laughing matter. It's a big deal. I mean, a lot of these places, you know, the average temperatures are quite balmy and, you know, they their energy system was basi- basically stretched to the breaking point. I've been reading stories of people receiving $7,000 electricity bills. You know, there were millions of people without power. Their infrastructure is sort of interesting in Texas because they've chosen to completely isolate themselves from the rest of the country. So when it comes to like the energy grid, Texas made the decision that, you know, we're such a good energy producing state that we don't really need anybody else's help. So we don't want to we don't want to tie into the larger grid. And what that meant in this disaster is that no one was really able to help them. So they were kind of just stuck on their own. It was kind of funny watching politicians try to blame, you know, green energy or, you know, wind turbines or whatever, when really it was a failure of the state to plan for such an event. And it wasn't just electricity. It was also water. I mean, you had millions of people without water. Pipes were freezing. Pipes were breaking. You know, there were floods inside people's houses. It was awful. I mean, people were dying in their homes of exposure, of hypothermia. So, I mean, nothing funny about it whatsoever. And obviously, you know, my heart goes out to our friends in Texas. It has been declared a disaster area by President Biden. They are applying for some federal help on that at the same time that a a bill to secede from the union is moving through the state legislature. <laughs> oh man! That's, and meanwhile, you I have to, you have I Ted Cruz, right? Who's who's their senator? Who literally like 
went to Mexico with his family right in the middle of this crisis. And, you know, after the fact, we learned through some text messages that he was asking people like, where can we go that has, you know, heat and water? It's like, let's all go to Mexico. And people (laughs) saw him in the airport. And basically shamed him to come back to Texas, and he was lying about. Well, I was, I was just there to accompany my family. I was going to fly right back, and like that isn't true. And he literally it, it, lied. He, he literally, literally blamed his daughters. He said, "Well, I was just trying to be a good dad, and my daughter said they wanted to go down there to Cancun." I mean, how old are your kids, Ted? Like, are they like twelve? They look like they're twelve. So your, your daughters are like, "Dad, we want to go to Cancun." <laughs> and so I, I think the point of this, I mean, to tie it back to what you said about Texas's energy in infrastructure, which you're right, it's it's isolated from the rest of the country in a really odd way. It's that Republican leadership is bad leadership. It leads to bad governance like this. This th- The fact that there are utility owners who are bragging about how they hit, quote, the jackpot with how much they were able to raise energy prices in the middle of this crisis as it was hitting, as people are literally freezing in their homes. There was a child in Texas who died because the home didn't have heat. And these people are bragging about how they're making money off of it. And it's you're going to hear you're going to hear about a lot more deaths. But I wanted to say, I mean, you you know a little bit more about the ins and outs of bureaucracy and government. But I thought there were literal utility boards that controlled prices. Like it seems like an episode of price gouging, which is illegal to just increase rates when demand is high because people are freezing. I mean, didn't they have some sort of system in place? I mean, do you know anything about that? I, I don't. But I do. I do know that, again, one of the people who is in charge who's profiting off of this literally said that he hit the jackpot when this happened so that's i mean even to think that way is unbelievable right i hit the jackpot really you did i mean your neighbors are dying you hit the jackpot huh okay the funny thing let me just yeah yeah really quick just because i i had to search for it as you brought it up um Comstock Resources Incorporated, a natural gas company headquartered in Texas, experienced a boon in prices for its gas today amid a statewide shortage as the storm left Texas without power. Um, <laughs> the the CEO, sorry, the, the CFO, Roland Burns. Uh, All right. All said, right, Roland. He's said, Roland. Roland he, is Roland. Apparently he is. Um, he said, quote, this week is like hitting the jackpot with some of these incredible <laughs> oh prices. God. Frankly, oh we are able to sell at super premium <laughs> prices for a material amount of production, end quote. So this is a gas company. OK, and that is just absolutely disgusting. I mean, that is literally the worst of the worst. It it can't really get much worse than that. I mean, he's essentially celebrating the breakdown of the civil order and systems that provide comfort and, you know, life, basically like life saving electricity and gas to people. And he's saying we're making a ton of money that I mean, I can't imagine being so narrow minded. It's crazy. That's crazy. I, I mean, it's like it's it's hard to like. It's hard to exaggerate that, like, just to reiterate what you just said, he is saying I made money off of people suffering a direct line, like I mean, not even guy, an indirect, like a literal direct line. This guy makes Mr. Moneybags from Monopoly look like a philanthropist because at least he develops his properties. Dude 
Mr. Moneybags, I, I mean, he's a rich dude with a mustache. I feel like he was always pretty chill. Like he was and a monocle. I he mean, was just he, as comfortable on Baltic Avenue as he was on Park Place. You know. Well, I mean, he just wants to corner every market and crush you. But yeah, I mean, at least he's <laughs> at least he's producing some public good. I guess. At least he's making <laughs> hotels, bro. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I would I'm love fine. to live in one of his hotels. And by the way, I'm I'm totally fine with Baltic Avenue. I don't need to be on Park Place. I don't need to be on Boardwalk. I don't know if you. <laughs> What are, the, what are the green ones? I feel like the green ones are the best because there's three of them. There's like Pennsylvania. Uh, oh, I forgot. Yeah, Dude, I, I haven't played Monopoly. I really want to play Monopoly all of a sudden. This sounds really fun. Okay, let's oh let's make this one of our, uh, when I get to see you in person again, let's play a game of Monopoly. So I want to go tell back us to, what the green ones were. Thank you very much. Yeah, what were they? I don't remember either. Um, so, okay, Ted Cruz. I just want to go back to this for just one second. Okay, Ted Cruz has, he uses anything as a political opportunity to make hay. And I think you'll remember, I mean, Ted Cruz has lambasted other politicians for going on vacation during disasters, given Nancy Pelosi crap about having ice cream in her freezer during the pandemic. I mean, the dude is completely merciless. He's awful. And he's com- he's, he's a total liar. I mean, when they, when they called him, he was walking through the airport and he you know they're like mr cruz you know did you have a statement he's like oh terrible terrible thing going on here it's just unbelievable while he goes and escapes to cancun i i had to remind myself that cancun ted you know he just uh he, the last the last time he was up for re-election was in 2018 and if he was up for re-election like next year i think this could have a major impact on him because this is the type of thing that makes politicians look really bad unfortunately you know senators serve six-year terms and so so Ted's not up for a while, but the last time, I don't know if you remember this, the last time he was up for re-election in 2018, Beto O'Rourke got pretty damn close in Texas. The The overall vote, just to remind everyone, and I was, I was you know, living in Albuquerque at the time of this race, and I donated quite a bit of money to Beto because I, I really, even though I didn't live in Texas, you know, I really supported him and I thought he was a good guy and I would love to see te- Texas flip blue at some point, but the overall popular vote was Ted Cruz for Four million two hundred and sixty thousand to Beto O'Rourke, four million forty five thousand, which is pretty damn close. And as the demographics in Texas continue to shift, I mean, Ted, he better be looking out next time because I don't think Beto's going away. Yeah. And it's funny because as Ted is getting on a plane to go to Mexico, Beto was fundraising and continues to fundraise for people who were affected by this disaster, showing showing the leadership that Ted Cruz doesn't have. And like, on the one hand, I I kind of feel like. Like the optics of traveling during a disaster, um, I think it's an important thing to hold people accountable for. I also, on the other hand, think there are other more meaningful ways that disasters like this could have been avoided by his leadership or lack thereof. And again, thinking about how Texas's energy grid is so disconnected from the rest of the country, thinking about how it was possible that a gas company could jack up its prices when people needed it the most. Those are the types of things that as a voter, if I lived in Texas, I would like to see how my politicians were responding to those kinds of things. And we know damn well that Ted Cruz doesn't only, he he not only not cares that those things happened, he probably touts that they did, right? And he, I mean, they've dug up tweets showing that he was talking about, oh, Texas's energy independence is such a great thing, and it's 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 the bastion of deregulation and, and small government, and it leads to stuff like this. And so I'm I'm kind of hopeful that both the combined the optics of him leaving, and just shining a light on his historical failure to lead, um, both hurts him more next time he's up for election. You're right, it is really really close. 
And Ted, your beard looks awful. Um, so it really that's does. Sort of, he, it looks yeah. like somebody. It looks bad. It, it, it looks. looks bad. Like, do you remember that Beavis and Butthead episode where they <laughs> wanted to grow a beard? <laughs> I'm not even. Gonna, I'm just going to stop right there. Do you know what I'm talking <laughs> that's about? That's enough. Yeah, I do, and that's enough. And yes, that's what it looks like. <laughs> he looks like a guy who went to an Ivy League school because he did. Who's a total politician insider, which he is. Who thinks he's going to look all rough and tumble down in Texas with a beard? It's just silly. He oh, looks man. silly. It's fine. It's fine. All right. So so, you know, that sort of segued, that was our first news you can use, but we never actually did the song um, because that sort of segued into my opening. So I got to do news you can use. Da, 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 da. I know I was thinking about how I could mix that up and I that's what I landed on. Like, <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. That's where we I, are. I put you on the spot. So I got <laughs> I got one more little news you can use from Texas. It's uh, regarding former former Colorado City Mayor Tim Boyd. He's it's Colorado City is a town in Texas. This mayor is so steeped in this sort of like bootstrap do it yourself ideology that this is what he tweeted during this unprecedented disaster in his state. And uh, then he was made to resign after saying this. So I just want to read a little tiny bit of it, if I may. Yeah, you bet. And, and you can tell me, I'll, I'll pose it as a question. Do you agree with this sentiment of a mayor of a town tweeting this out? OK, let me hurt some feelings while I have a minute. No one owes you or your family anything. Wait, he started nor... by saying, let me hurt some feelings. Yeah, what that's what it says. OK, continue. Yeah, please. that's. Well, he was like, oh, this is the type of politics we do down in Texas. We just talk it straight like it is. That's just, that's where he's coming. Anyway. Yeah. Continue. I know you're not in Texas. Right. But OK. No one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim. It's your choice. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. The companies that you're paying money to pr provide a service to you owe you nothing. That's what he's saying. The duly elected I'm, government that is supposed to represent you doesn't represent you, apparently, exact, in his eyes. I'm, I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. If you don't have electricity, you step up and come up with a game plan to keep you and your family safe and warm. If you have no water, you deal with it. You think outside the box to survive and supply water to your family. If you're sitting at home cold because you have no power and you're sitting there waiting for someone else to come rescue you because you're lazy, it's a direct result of your raising. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Folks, God has given us the tools to support ourselves in times like these. This is a sad product of a socialist government where they feed people to believe that the few will work and others will get to become dependent on handouts. What? I'm sorry that you I know, right? I'm sorry that you've been dealing without electricity and water. Yes, but I'll be damned if I'm going to provide for anyone that's capable of doing it themselves because we all have a private well and generators. Right, Brandon? You must have written this yourself. There's no fucking way this is real. I, this is 100% real. <laughs> we have lost sight of those in need uh, to take advantage of the system. And you're all meshed into one group. Bottom line, quit crying and quit looking for a handout. Get off your ass and take care of your own family. Bro, it's a tweet like it's an it, it's a number of tweets. He did. He did later issue an apology before he stepped down. But still, to even think like that is amazing. It's so amazing. It literally sounds like you made that up. And the fact that you didn't is insane. The, the, so there's so much we could unpack there. But just in the interest of time, I want to focus on one thing he said. It was the part about that the system of socialism has led people to believe blah, 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 blah. 
The system of capitalism and deregulation directly led to the crisis in Texas. Had they been connected to other parts of the country and their energy grid, people would not have been impacted in the same way. It's a literal direct result of the opposite of socialism that this happened. Like it like it's just it blows my mind. Like I just I mean there's I yeah, I I don't I, mean, I don't have any words for it. There will always be unforeseen circumstances. There will always be natural disasters, too, right? Like, even if they were tied to the wider grid, they could have still had a problem. I'm not saying that, you know, that would have solved everything. But I am saying that sentiment from a public official during a crisis is like the most insulting and least helpful possible way to act. And it's totally incredible that that man thought that he should tweet that. And I'm sure he was sitting in his nice warm house with his generator fired up and like, you know, his private well defrosted. But not everyone has that. A lot of people in Texas live in other circumstances, right? Not everybody has this huge farm in Texas. I mean, There's lots of cities there. Listen to what he said. He he basically said that if you are poor, you should die and the basically, government shouldn't yes. help you during a crisis, yes. which is like it, the funny thing is like the if you if you think about conservative political philosophy, I mean, they say, oh, government should only be like it, they should have their hands in national security and like natural disaster stuff. And that's that's it. Nothing else. And so he's saying government shouldn't even do that. Like, I, I just it's infuriating. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he probably has a certain amount of wealth that allows him to provide for himself. I mean, some people have a private, you know, in California, they hire private uh, fire suppression companies, private firefighters to protect their houses during forest fires. I mean, it, there is an element of our society that just really believes they could go it alone. I happen to think that's a completely faulty worldview and attempting to do that would create, you know, such wide social unrest that no one would be able to have a good time anymore. But, you know, that's just me. Wild. All right, let's move on. Okay. Um, well, we get to talk about Joe Biden, and this is so fantastic. I haven't mentioned the T word yet, and I'm not going to, I don't think, in this episode. Nice. Unless he, he comes up in the periphery somewhere. But um, I've been reading about this from both sides of the of the aisle, you know, the conservative media and the more liberal media or more mainstream. And it sounds like America first is over. America first. You know, Trump's uh, incredible, easy-to-access way of saying that everybody else can go F themselves <laughs> is over. We are working with allies again, and I have a couple examples of it, but I wanted to read this quote from Joe Biden because I just thought it was pithy and I thought you could comment on it. What do you think? Yeah. OK, in regard um, specifically, you know, I believe he was being asked about the the U.S. has now decided not to withdraw troops from Germany. And we can talk about that a little bit. And post World War Two, you know, sort of like uh, our our cooperation we have with other Western democracies. But his quote was, our partnerships have endured and grown through the years because they are rooted in the richness of our shared democratic values. They're not transactional, he said, rebuking the preferred worldview of his predecessor in favor of something more cooperative. Ah, I love it. Like, I mean, the the fantasy that in 2021 with the interconnectedness of the entire world and not just our economies and manufacturing and labor um and our intellectual uh uh you know our collective intellectual understanding of how the world works but just how people move and and live together and connect with our, like the fantasy that america can be on its own island is just that it's a fantasy and it's funny because as much as Trump wanted to say, oh, I dang it, as much as 
the former president. <laughs> wanted, Excellent work, Brandon. Damn it. As much as that person, whoever their name may be, wanted to show this veneer of America is doing everything by itself. When you dug in, when you lifted the carpet and actually saw the spiders moving around, you knew very well that this person <laughs> and their entire business is completely interconnected on other countries and the things that happened around the world. Yes, correct. I just, I just think that that's really funny. And so, yeah, like... Yeah, it's, it's this idea like, you know, on the right, Alex Jones and others are like globalists. It's like Trump is out there cavorting around with dictators, right? right. It's, it's the type of countries that he wanted to associate us with. Russia, right? Some, some Middle Eastern, you know, monarchies where people can't even vote. It's just awful. Like Trump, Trump was always working with other people around the world. He just wor wasn't working with other democracies. That's the bottom line. Right. And again, like when you look at how the world works and, and again, like what era we're in technologically, there is no way that we could live on Earth without communicating with doing business with sharing interests with other countries. That's just that's reality. And I think that obviously there is some balance of whether you are a think about the size of government, right? A city or a county or a state or a country. Uh, like I get that there is a balance between wanting to advocate for your interests and then also cooperate as part of a larger whole. But I think that the part of the larger whole is an important part of advocating for your own interests. Because if you're the person, have you ever watched the show Survivor, Alex? Is that something you're familiar with? I've seen like a clip or two on the interwebs. So Cassie and I have been deep into Survivor for a while now, right? And the the, the people come on this, you know, this island and there's like, you know, you start with like 18 people and they start voting people off one by one, right? And then you finally get to like the, the last person who wins a prize. The do, thing you, do, you, do you have to eat scorpions in every episode or just no. some? Just some okay. of them. Just some okay. of them. Okay, okay, they okay. Usually, they usually have, like, one episode where there's, like, some kind of a gross eating competition. There's, like, a like a spider, like a sea slug or stuff like that. Um, I'm, on, I'm on all that, by the way. I'll try any food at least once. Pretty much anything. I don't I'm know, down. man, that, like, the literal tarantulas, I was actually thinking. It's like, I just that hairy leg going down my throat. The point is that the survivor <laughs> analogy is that you show up on this island you can't just walk to the other side of the beach and be like, I'm just going to catch my own fish. I'm going to build my own shelter, right? Like if you don't have alliances with your other tribe members, you're pretty much fucked. But in that alliance, you also are advocating for your own interest because you were trying to get to the end. And that's, I think Donald Trump would be the guy at the end of the beach, you know, with pouting with his head downcast and joe biden would be the guy who is talking with people and those are the people who end up winning the show because they make alliances and they get to the end like that's a simple that, that, that's a simple way to put it yeah i know we're talking about trump again but i just have to mention and i i think anyone who's taken the time to listen to this podcast understands trump was a terrible leader i mean he was an awful leader and my number one case in point is how many americans how what proportion of the population did trump actually represent right how how many people saw what trump was doing and really agreed with it trump did what was best for his financial interest bottom line at all times that is still who trump is that will continue to be who he is um 
it, this idea of like America being isolationist or not, you know, harkens back to the very early days of the con the country. George Washington even thought about that. You know, are we going to go and help other countries with democratic revolutions or not? You know, where are we going to where are we going to find ourselves? Should we just stick to our own since we have this big landmass, or should we go and and help people who have similar ideas? You know, the most sort of I don't know recent example of this was World War II, probably right. So World War II, I had to look it up. I did. I was like, it went on for a couple years, right before the U.S. joined. Germany attacks Poland, essentially starting the war in 1939, and it's not until 1941 that the United States decides to join. And this is only after Japan, you know, uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, thinking, you know, eventually the U.S. is going to be involved. It makes sense in hindsight if you use history as a lens to be looking out for yourself, right? And trying to uh, trying to prevent things like this and and working with like-minded people around the world to prevent bad things from happening in the future, don't you think? Yeah, I, again, that makes perfect sense. We talk about, we live in a world where people can connect and travel and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, like maybe, you know, hundreds of years ago when countries didn't necessarily rely on each other for trade and for communication, all that stuff, it was possible to kind of just live on your own spot of earth and that's completely fine. Nowadays, that's just not possible. And yes, it makes sense that you have allies, people that you share interests with. So it's like if something happens that there's some collective understanding of how to respond, blah, blah, blah. And I don't mean to get too sci-fi about it, but if there is a future, you know, long past our deaths, but if there's a future in which we find that there's other intelligent life in the universe and we're able to communicate and travel between, I would very much, I would think that it would be the same thing, that that circle of communication, of coordination would expand or one of the planets would be blown up. You know, one of the two. But like, that's the thing, right? <laughs> like, it, it, it's, it's just like the people that you're in contact with, that you connect with, you, you really just can't ignore them forever. Just that's not how reality works. Uh, I wish that's how reality worked. Uh, life would be so much easier if I could just live in my giant gold tower by myself and no one would mess with me. Well, just, right. I mean, it, and like, uh, yes, like people like that individual, it's like if you and, and that, that Texas mayor. Sure. If you have enough independent resources to totally fend for yourself, then sure. Yeah, fine. But that that's not the reality for 99 percent of people nor will it ever be, right? And that's why we live in a society. Like, there's a reason why humans coordinate with one another because it's in all of our best interests. This, this should not be complicated, right? Like, that's, it's, that's the weird thing about it. This should not be, like, a controversial thing. It was, yeah, I mean, during the Trump era, it was very sad for me. Like, I felt a, a palpable sense of loss. At, you know, when we would get into these tiffs with countries like Germany or the UK or Canada on, on things that should be, like, you know, commonly held beliefs, like, you know, that we're working together on. It was, it, it's just, it's been relieving for me to see Joe Biden reinvest in that. And I think he is uniquely positioned to offer, you know, a, a different face of America that people feel like they can trust because Obama was president for eight years and Joe Biden has been a statesman for like his whole life. <laughs> so yeah. well, I think he's, yeah. Well, and I, I just wanted to pivot um, to say very briefly, speaking of Joe Biden, is that, mm. Oh is yeah. That, wow. You want to talk about Joe Biden? Okay. Yeah. You talk about Joe Biden, talk about well, Joe Biden. Brandon. Really quick. We don't have to spend too much time on this, but because it's come up before and because I'm passionate about it, I'm disappointed to hear that Joe Biden has said that he will not be forgiving $50,000 in student loan debt, that he's considering up to $10,000 and anything more would have to come from Congress. 
I'm not hopeful about anything coming from Congress, given the split between Democrats and Republicans, and given that I don't think that this is something that can come through budget reconciliation, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But really quick, Alex, your your thought, maybe to reiterate, like your opinion on why Joe Biden wouldn't want to forgive $50,000 of student loan debt. Do you care? Do you think that's a good choice by him? Are you pissed off at him? Like, do you have a thought about that? I mean, I, I think I had texted you earlier earlier in the week, you know, that I wanted to argue with you about this point because I know you're very pro forgiving student debt and I am not so much. So I think this is sort of an interesting question for us to look at with regard to why did Joe Biden say that? I mean, I think Joe Biden, one of your criticisms of Joe Biden before he was our knight in shining armor, <laughs> saving us from Trump. Oh, man. Was that you and I remember you saying this, you you thought of him as like a sold out finance industry credit card bank guy, right? Is that right? Right. OK. And he is sort of. I mean, he's from the state of Delaware. There's a lot of uh, companies that do financial services there. He's kind of always represented the banks. I I think it. this is sort of antithetical to Joe Biden's, you know, basically the way he's operated through his political career that we're going to forgive student debt. That is a huge, giant economic engine in this country. You're talking about forgiving, you know, five hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt. You're talking about a trillion dollars. That's a huge I mean, that's insane. That's a huge amount of money. Right. I think. Yeah, I just don't think Joe Biden really believes that that's a good path forward. Um, As far as like my own beliefs on it, I'm not so certain that forgiving student debt is is really I mean, I know it would benefit certain people personally who have debt. But like, what is the goal with? social policy is the goal you know are you trying to even the playing field are you trying to that's part of it okay and so talk to me about some of the things that you think not just because i know for you personally it would be good but like what do you think would be some good societal outcomes from forgiving that much student debt i think there's a couple things one of them to your point is it's it's about something that's the right thing to do because in my view the system of higher education has gotten more and more skewed away from providing opportunity and toward gatekeeping so that only certain people can go to college right like you think about our parents generation back in let's say in the in the mid 80s you were able to work a minimum wage job part time and afford to go to a state university. By the time I went to Oregon State University in the mid-2010s, by the time I was at that point, my working full-time at more than minimum wage didn't even come close to paying my tuition and my books, right? Like I had grants, I had um, some loans, I had some, some other financial aid stuff I was fortunate to get. And and that now is 10 years ago. It's even worse now, Alex. It's at the point where you would have to work if you had a minimum wage job. I think that it's something like 90 hours a week in order to afford public. This is not, we're not talking about Harvard here. We're talking about a public university. So my point is that over the last couple of generations, we have just allowed the 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 amount of money it takes to go to college in the first place to go up so much apparently we haven't been paying attention and so people have student debt that our parents just wouldn't have 
people like Joe Biden just wouldn't have this debt in the first place. And so part of it is rectifying and kind of acknowledging that that was wrong. That's part of it. The other part of it, it's an economic stimulus, right? So let's say I have you know 30000 in debt. If I'm making a $400 payment toward that student debt every month, you wipe that away. That $400 is now maybe I'm saving a little bit of it. Maybe I'm more resilient when a disaster hits. Maybe I'm spending a little bit more of it, right? So that's the point is that there's an economic stimulus benefit to that, that it's better that that money be spread throughout our economy rather than being super concentrated to, you know, these organizations like Fed loan or whatever, all these student loan providers. So those are two arguments. One is that it's the right thing to do. The second is that it'd be an economic stimulus. That's okay. Let me interject with a few things. Okay. So one, yes, I think we have a problem with, with college, uh, you know, college tuition and access to education in this country. And Joe Biden is proposing I, I believe he's proposing free four-year state institutions. In an, in he hasn't come up with a specific proposal for that, but he's you know at the very least they're looking at community colleges and hopefully extending to state four-year universities. So that's one way, and I think a better way to kind of address this problem. Now the Brookings that Institution pe- that helps people who are about to go to college. What about people I'm, who already have? I'm about to I'm about to uh, to answer that. So the Brookings well, Institution. Up. The Brookings Institution found that Elizabeth Warren, when she was proposing for giving up to 50,000 of student debt, um, what this would do is it would be a regressive proposal and the bottom 60 percent of households would receive only 34 percent of the benefit. The fact of the matter is going to college is still the best way to increase your overall income earning potential throughout your lifetime. It just absolutely is. Both you and I know that. Both you and I understand that. Right. We both made the decision to go to college. We signed the papers. We took out the loans. Nobody forced us, right? Society didn't come and force us to go to college. And forgiving these huge amounts of student debt, though, I understand it would be, you know, beneficial to middle income and upper, you know, middle class people who went to college. It it doesn't really act as an economic stimulus to people who never went to college um, at all. So a lot of the, the bottom income earners don't see any benefit from this. And it's insanely expensive. Now, when Joe Biden talks about, you know, maybe doing something on student loans, he talks about maybe doing forgiving, you know, $10,000 per person. Right. Yep. I'm not sure that that's even worthwhile. I mean, for people really, I mean, I know it's, it's 10,000, it's not nothing, but like, again, it would be incredibly expensive. And would it make really that big of an impact on people? Um, I'm not sure. And then the last thing I want to say about this is I think what it, about, I well continue. I'll, 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 go, I'll get to that point. This, this, I also feel this proposal to forgive student debt, it's, it's regressive for another reason. What about people who chose to go to an Ivy League college or people who went to medical school or law school? And are making great money. You're going to forgive fifty thousand dollars worth of debt on these people, and if not, I mean, how are you going to decide? You know how much an Ivy League school costs? Like, yeah, it costs a lot. More than that, but so like, but those folks are also, you know, I would assume making making more money and able to pay off that debt and. So I, I just well, oh, don't so, think. So let me let me jump in here. There are a couple things to, to the last point. There have been tons of studies have shown that means testing that is putting kind of a threshold on providing relief with programs like this, be it a stimulus check or debt relief, is actually a, a bad idea. And it doesn't have the intended outcome, which is don't give pe- money to people who don't need it. 
everyone kind of agrees with that, but the mechanisms to get there end up not having the positive effect that you'd like them to have. So it's usually not a good idea to, to have that in mind and think, oh, we're doing the right thing by not giving money to people who don't need it. But the other point was if you have a specific amount of money that you're paying toward your student loan debt, to your point about $10,000 not being a lot, if you have budgeted your monthly income to make the minimum payment on your student loan debt, then you have your car, auto insurance, your phone, your rent, food, clothes, internet, all of your other bills, and you put it in an Excel spreadsheet, yes, getting rid of $10,000 actually helps quite a bit because the minimum amount that you can pay on your student loan has now gone down. So your obligation to keep your loan in good standing you now have to pay less on that. So it does help. And I can say this as somebody who has spent the last couple of years really looking at my financial situation and understanding how much debt I had. I had ignored it for a long time, like many Americans, frankly, and have taken many, many steps to get that all in order. And part of that was really understanding how much debt I had, how much I was obligated to pay, and making smart and, frankly, some pretty hard choices about where my money went. But that would have been helpful to me. And I know that we're right now in a time where those interest payments uh, has been suspended. People don't have to pay toward their student loan right now because of COVID. And that's great for the time being. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to respond to those two points. Let me read one more little quote here. And then, you know, I, obviously we could go back and forth on this probably all day. But a 2015 analysis by the think tank Demos was even more pessimistic about the impact of untargeted debt forgiveness. Quote, while eliminating student debt for all households, regardless of income, increases median net worth for young white and black households, white families see a greater benefit likely due to a higher likelihood of completing college and graduate degree programs, it said. Quote, policies which eliminate all student debt for young households would expand the divide, the median divide of wealth between black and white families by an additional 9%. So, I mean, again, I understand. I think part of this is pandering to the constituency. Democrats are more likely to have gone to college. And so forgiving student debt is, is a fairly popular proposal when so many people carry student debt. I myself carried, you know, $70,000 worth of student debt. So I, I don't know. We, we could go back and forth. But keep in mind, we're doing a lot of stimulus right now. And if you just keep throwing money at problems, eventually you're going to have problems with inflation. So I think Joe Biden is being careful. And as a sort of more middle of the road Democrat, I've actually appreciated how he's approaching it, even though you may not agree with me. Yeah. And the last my last comment on this is I think when you're talking about looking at different analyses of how this debt forgiveness would impact people and the economy and who would help, there are there's no one opinion about this. Right. Like this is these are the kinds of substantive policy de debates that we should be having. Right. Not whether or not the sky is blue, but whether or not are agreed upon facts of a certain policy would have its intended outcome. I'm just saying, Alex, that you and I are modeling the kinds of policy debates that I wish we would see in the federal <laughs> Congress. That's all. So good job. I love it. That was such a good that was such a good plug for our, our podcast, That's which right. our dear listeners are already listening to. Oh, man. Um, so let's move on to the next point. I'll let you intro this since you've got some very beautiful graphs in here that I want you to go over. I know the <laughs> listeners can't see them, but Brandon will describe them in such vivid detail that the, the graphs, the the uh, the lines will literally pop out of the screen. You'll be able to see them visualized in front of your face. 
Yeah, it's about it's about COVID, right? Because it's important that, um, you know, the thing that is affecting everyone's life is something we talked about on the show. Um, right now, uh, COVID cases have been trending down, which is great. We're now seeing about 60 plus thousand new cases per day. The reason why that's important is because that is the fewest number of new cases since the middle of the summer last year when we had that that mini surge in cases between July and August uh, before the major, major case uh, surge we saw this winter. Um, Can I interject with one quick thing? Please. Yes! Yes, I know. It's huge. <laughs> this is really, really good, right? We're we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel and connected to that, not only are the cases going down, the deaths are going down, the hospitalizations are going down. We're now reaching uh, a level of vaccination that at our current pace, um, and that's not to say that the pace of vaccinating people cannot increase because, of course, it can. But at our current pace yeah, and um, the cold, the recent cold weather hasn't helped at all. So I think, yeah, as things start to thaw, we'll probably see an uptick in, in vaccine rates as well or vaccination rates. Yeah. And as more vaccines are available, as the distribution gets better and all that stuff, um, that at our current pace, uh, the, the, the U.S. will be at about 70 percent immunity by the beginning of October. That's important because that's about the point at which you reach what's called herd immunity, right, where the spread of the virus is severely reduced. The other point that, that I don't have a beautiful graph for is that we're starting finally to get data about the efficacy of the vaccine. Is that the word I'm looking for? Um, uh-huh, yep, uh, yep. So that if you are vaccinated, it not only reduces the severity of COVID cases among people who get it, it not only reduces the likelihood of you getting COVID in the first place, but that also it reduces the potential for you to spread it to somebody else. That is extremely important because when you think about it, the, why are we staying at home so much? Why are we wearing masks? Because you have a disease which is both highly contagious and also extremely dangerous. And so through a combination of some people have had COVID and people getting vaccinated, if it is less likely to spread and if it is less dangerous, that means that we don't have to give this thing as much attention as we're giving it, which is, again, the light at the end of the tunnel. We're not there yet. We still have many months to go, but it's just, it, it's encouraging to see this data coming out that we do see a future in which we don't have to worry about living, you know, in, in a state of permanent emergency. So I just wanted to, to make a note of that. Yeah, I've definitely felt I mean, there was a time, you know, three or four months ago that just felt very dark as far as COVID goes. Other Absolutely. things, too, of course. But, you know, I definitely feel light at the end of the tunnel. I'm feeling more hopeful. I'm going to schedule our father on Monday for his shot because he oh, needs help good. with me doing that online. And then I'll be able to schedule mom the week after. Um, I've been vaccinated because I'm a healthcare worker. Your significant other has been vaccinated. You know, eventually it's going to be open to everybody. There's so I, also, I'm the loser in this situation then well but you're well loved so i think you know just by being well loved your immune system is is pumped up a little bit brandon so um by the way just also, really i'm i i am fortunate that i am not high risk i'm healthy i'm young so the fact that i'm not getting the vaccine is means that i'm doing okay and i'm i'm thankful for that yeah yeah you're young good looking tall i get it i get oh it my God. as your shorter older brother i get it oh lord uh, <laughs> 
just kidding. Um, but seriously, um, what was I saying? Oh, so in addition to the two vaccines that have already been approved, the Moderna and the Pfizer, you know, there's we already have enough enough vaccine just with those two companies to vaccinate nearly every American or possibly every American. The Biden administration has been purchasing up as many additional doses as they can. But you also have the Johnson and Johnson vaccine coming on the scene shortly, which is also a highly efficacious vaccine. And it, it looks like all of these vaccines pretty much eliminate um, deaths. You know, if you take these vaccines, you're not going to die of COVID, which that is exactly what we need. So I think the future looks really bright. I am hopeful that, you know, by hopefully October 31st of this year, uh, things will be opened up again so we can have a huge Halloween party, which you are invited to, Brandon. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think that we can expect to see, you know, potentially that things are starting to to look and feel more normal around the summer. Um, it's not that every precaution is going to be dropped, but we're going to get closer and closer to the point where, where things start feeling a little bit better, which is, which is good. People want to be out in the good weather. I actually spent a lot of time yesterday scrubbing our deck and and cleaning this outdoor little thing that was just full of moss kind of partially in in hopes and anticipation that we can have people over um at some point when the weather gets better it's outdoors and so even if you're wearing masks and stuff we can probably do that in a way that's safe that we're not comfortable doing right now at any rate yeah oh it's so awesome brandon i just want to say can you come over to my house and scrub my deck too because i'm just feeling a little lazy and i got a lot of other stuff going on i will just say this this deck it's not (laughs) like i was doing it for vanity purposes it had become so slippery with like you know, um, moss and just like slime and grime. I, I took a giant deck scrubber and a bucket of soapy water and it, I took, it took hours, man. Like it was actually really, really hard. And I didn't have a hose. So I had to keep getting, anyway, yeah. Cry for me. But like it, it was, I kept slipping and like almost eating oh. shit when I was just kind of trying to walk into my house. So anyway, it's clean now. Good stuff. <laughs> and just, cool just story, tell the bro. truth. Pre- previous to cleaning the deck, had you purposely slid around it a little bit, at least I hope. Yeah, I mean, a little bit, <laughs> just <laughs> okay. a little bit. Let's talk about since this is a politics podcast, let's talk a little bit about, you know, next week is going to be a big week. We're not going to revisit impeachment trial of Trump. That was insane. I'm glad it's over. I think, you know, the House impeachment managers made a good decision ending that and not going with uh, witnesses, because honestly, you weren't going to convince Republicans to vote against Trump anyway. So what that means is that we can get back to work, which is fantastic. That's what Biden wants to be doing. That's what the American people want to be doing. And the stimulus, the stimulus relief bill. Uh, what is it? A one point nine trillion dollar bill is going to be weaving its way through uh, the various branches. And I wanted to talk about some of the details that are going to be in that bill. Brandon, what do you think? Talk about those deets. Let's talk about stimulus checks. And do you like your stimulus checks? So let's talk like how is this going to happen, right? Like people have been waiting, people have been waiting. So um, the Democrats are introducing this bill that have different components in it. And they're hoping to get all of this passed through this process called budget reconciliation that you and I have talked about. Could you say that one more time? One more time. Budget reconciliation. Budget reconciliation. Yep. We've talked about this on the show before. It is kind of a weird arcane rule that says if you have stuff that is directly related to the budget, you can pass it without 
uh, fear of it being fi- filibustered, right? So that's the thing is that right now Republicans, they can filibuster many pieces of legislation. It would force 60 votes in order to pass anything. But if you do it through this process called budget reconciliation, you could do it with only 50 votes. So, so basically everything that's going to get done in the next you know few years is going to be done through this method, probably. <laughs> Not really. everything, but like anything Pretty that much. is related to the budget, right? And, and, and here's, maybe I'll just bounce really quickly. Um, I, the question in my mind is, well, who gets to decide what's related to the budget. We also talked a little bit about this, but as a reminder, there is a professional in the Senate called the Senate parliamentarian that you have to convince that the thing you want to do is related to the budget. They and they alone get to decide. And so this person, her name is Elizabeth McDonough, Bernie Sanders as chair of the budget committee and other Democrats are trying to convince her that things like the stimulus checks, that things like extending unemployment, <laughs> things like now, 15... look, look, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, please l- let me let me make my argument. <laughs> Love let it. me be clear. No, it's funny because <laughs> yeah, that, that was I, awesome. Thank you. She she again, she is just one person. It's just an odd quirk of how this process works. Now, so you weird. can override their decision, but you would need 60 votes to do it. So ah. this is another kind of a weird supermajority thing. Um, the other thing before we talk about the specific things in this deal, I just wanted to mention, because I did a little bit of research, since 1935, since this position was created, there have only been six Senate parliamentarians, and Elizabeth is the first woman to hold this position. So literally since 1935. Wow, it must be a good job. I, w- I wonder if it pays well. I wonder what the benefits are. 170K, so pretty okay. good. Yeah, that's great. I did yeah. actually find that on Wikipedia. That's true. Um, okay. Yeah, it's just it's six people since 1935. Like that's, <laughs> uh, some of these people served for, you know, the first person who held this position served for like 30 years. At any rate, Alex, what is in this deal that Democrats are hoping to pass? So many good things. Okay, so we can glaze over. We we've the stimulus checks. I think we've talked about. You know, the cutoffs are a little different now. They're um, only going out. The the checks are only going out to individuals earning less than seventy five thousand dollars a year or couples earning less than one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, I believe the checks are going to be for fourteen hundred dollars for individuals and for children. Um, so, and a fa- what, what one article said is that a family of, of four could receive up to $5,600. So it's a pretty generous, I think it's a pretty generous stimulus check. I'm still on the fence whether I think this is really the best way to stimulate the economy, but I think in general, it's a very popular program and it does produce a you know, tangible benefit for people. So I'm glad they're going through with it. I still wish they could be a little bit more discerning about who gets this money. Like, you know, somebody with full employment like me, actually I have more than full employment i'm working too much right now i really don't need it will i take it yes will i, I mean, spend you could it give it yes. to me man no problem there quickly repeating that means testing these kinds of things when you try to start putting gates on who gets the benefit it ends up being more trouble than it's worth it ends up not having the effect you want it to have and there are people who are making seventy five thousand dollars that for a variety of circumstances could really use this and have been hit hard by the economy. Some people have lost their jobs, have had to work gigs like that. Like, so at any rate, I just wanted to throw that out there. 
Right. Okay. And and to dovetail into that. So this is the part of the program that I think is super essential is the unemployment assistance is being boosted. So it's going to increase the federal weekly boost to $400 from the current 300. It's going to prolong the duration of the program by quite a lot. Um, the It's going to provide benefits to freelancers, gig workers, independent contracts. Those this is the type of, of benefit that I think we really need. It's the folks that have been completely pushed out of work, you know, in whatever industry they're in. I think this is really, really, really important, and it's a big part of the bill. There's also nutrition assistance in there, 15% increase in food stamps. I think that's fantastic. Probably should have done that anyway, you know, even minus the pandemic. I think people who are on food stamps, I mean, just cost of living, cost of inflation, all of that. I mean, we should be increasing that anyway. Um, it includes $880 million for the Special Supplement Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. So this is the WIC program that you've probably heard of at some point. Yep. Again, I mean, why would we not do that? Like, give me a good reason not to provide nutritional assistance to pregnant women. Like, I can't think of a good reason to ever not do that. Um housing aid. So legislation is sending 19.1 billion to state and local governments to help low-income households cover rent, rent assistance and utility bills. How important is that that people don't get kicked out of their homes because of the coronavirus pandemic and associated economic fallout, right? How important is that? Um 10 billion authorized to help struggling homeowners pay their mortgages, utilities and property taxes, and another 5 billion to help states and localities assist um, with those experiencing homelessness. This is a compassionate bill. I mean, I, it's a it's a large price tag. It's a huge price tag, but the argument is if we spend money now, we're going to experience an economic resurgence in the future, and I think they are correct in assuming that. Yeah, no, of course, there have been tons of analyses done, and we have recent history to draw from, Alex. Think about the recession in 2007, 2008, 2009, as Barack Obama was coming into office. We had these same conversations where people were saying, well, we don't want to spend too much money. We have found, now looking back, that it would have been better to spend much more money because it would have it would have shortened the amount of time the economy took to recover. It would have helped people faster. So there's just, I mean, there's a moral argument outside the economic argument. But yes, it is very clear. And you've seen other countries have, have taken action much, much quicker than the U.S., obviously, right? Months ago, they've taken more action than this. And, um, yeah, It's yeah. important that this happen now. And I, so when you're kind of watching the news for next steps, the Democrats plan to introduce this tomorrow on, on Monday, February 22. Again, the, my understanding is that the Senate parliamentarian has yet to make a judgment about some aspects of this, because, again, doing it through this budget reconciliation process, this one person has to say, OK, that can be in there. And so they're sort of still waiting for her to say that, particularly on the increasing the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, that part of it in particular. But that will be the next step. And then there are a couple of moderate Democrats. We've talked about Joe Manchin from West oh, Virginia Joe. And, oh, a, Joe. and a handful of others that Democrats need to bring on board with this. But I agree with you, Alex. There is no good reason not to do this. There is no. Oh, oh, I wasn't even close to done, Brandon. I have more. But I want to say really quickly, I think we are about to experience the next iteration of the roaring 20s, right? 1920s uh, in American history was an amazing economic boon. You know, people were getting 
getting out there doing stuff. Things were growing really quickly. And it was post pandemic back then too. 1918, 1919, right? The I flu. don't think this is a comparison we want to be making because what happened after that? <laughs> well, hopefully we'll avoid some of the mistakes of the past. I think that um, was also an era of massive deregulation, right? That was what ushered in the great society. That's what is what, what ushered in things like social security, um, the, the, the work programs that like, like, look, like we should have learned these lessons about deregulating everything and letting people fend for themselves because again, we have history to look at, but then again, history repeats itself. So here we are. Well, thanks Brandon. I was trying to inject some hope, but anyway. Um, okay. So let me tell you <laughs> quickly about some other things that are going to be in here. The, this, this applies to me. Child tax credit is going to be increased to $3,600, um, for children under six. That's fantastic. There's going to be optional paid sick and family leave. So they're going to be working with that education and childcare. The bill is providing nearly 130 billion to K through 12 schools to help students return to the classroom. This is something Joe Biden talked about, you know, during the debates with uh, whatever that guy's name is, T-Rex. And um, I think it's really important. He's putting his money where his mouth is on this. He thinks people should be back in school. He thinks that we need further support to do that. And so they're going to they're going to move forward with that. The House bill also includes 40 billion for colleges um, who have been impacted in a variety of ways um, from additional costs to um, some smaller schools having huge reductions in enrollment, which is going to make it difficult for them to weather, you know, the pandemic. There's health insurance subsidies, Medicaid subsidies, more money for small business. OK, Republicans out there, there's money for small business on the way. More more money, 15 billion for the emergency injury disaster loan program, 25 billion for new grant programs specifically for bars and restaurants. Okay, hey, Lauren Boebert, don't you earn don't you own that little bar down there in Colorado? This is going to help you, right? So you you can you can feel good about this. And here's a big one that was like a point of contention between Republicans and Democrats aid to the states. There's 350 billion, quite a chunk, actually, um, direct aid to state and local governments. Republicans are like 100 percent against this. They do not like it. They think the federal government should stay out of trying to buoy up, you know, the uh, what they what they perceive as socialist states that are running in the red. Um, I think it's an important role that the federal government can play to keep states solvent. It seems to be like the whole reason we invented a federal government, right? Um, and then so. briefly, just a couple more. I know this is a big long list. 14 billion for vaccines and testing. And then very, very lastly, and I'm going to let you take this one away, Brandon, minimum wage increase. What do you think about minimum wage increase? Yeah, first, that that's a long list of things. All of them are important. Um, what I think about the minimum wage increase is what we were talking about a little bit ago about education, how costly it is, and how much you can purchase with your dollar if you have a minimum wage job. The rate of inflation has moved much more quickly than our federal minimum wage. So we need to change this, right? When, when you think about decades ago, when we first had a federal minimum wage, the buying power of that minimum wage was much higher than it is today. The minimum wage hasn't moved in many, many years, and it's been far past time to increase it to $15 an hour. So obviously I'm all for it. Yeah, I can think of one person that's not all for it, though, and his name is Joe, but it's not Biden. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing how much power this senator from West Virginia has because the Democrats have such a narrow majority in the Senate. It just takes one Democrat to say no. And it means that, you know, that particular proposal is not going to fly. Joe Manchin says he's willing to do an eleven dollar an hour minimum wage, but not 15. How do you feel about that, Brandon? He says his argument is, you know, 15 might be fine for places like California, but, you know, states states where the cost of living is lower, like West Virginia, you try to throw $15 minimum wage on us and, you know, you're going to crush small business. You're going to crush the burger joint down the street. You know, it's you're going to crush true, the mom though. and pop, like crush the mom and pop ice cream shops. You can you can look at businesses in other cities, other states and other countries that have to pay more in wages and the price of the hamburger doesn't go up by triple, right? They're still doing fine. So this is again, this is a I mean, a lot of this these are policy arguments, but a lot of this is a political philosophy argument of who should get to share in the spoils of society. And it's a fundamental disagreement between how much people who are working and producing things and adding value to the economy, how much they should get to share in 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 the benefit of, of living in society, right? And so like $15 an hour in West Virginia well, it may seem a little bit high to them, that is not unreasonable, not in a historical context in the U.S. and not in the context of other states and other countries in the world today. So I, I just think people have to be a little bit more imaginative about this. And look, like uh, Joe you, Manchin, are you, are you calling Joe Manchin a liar, Brandon? Not calling him a liar. I'm just saying that I wish that Joe Manchin would just be, again, a little bit more imaginative about what may be possible. We have never in the history of this country seen businesses shut down and close and fire people because they were required to pay people a little bit more. You know what has caused that, though? Recessions that have been caused directly by deregulation, by greed, right? That is what has hurt this economy and hurt people and taken away people's livelihoods, not paying them a little bit more. So, Joe Manchin, get on board, man. Come on. We'll see. We'll see. It's 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 interesting to follow this for sure. So um, that's, I the wanna... Demo- that's the Democrats plan, though, Alex. You know, that's the plan that they have. And, you know, it just shows we've got a, a variety of thought in our party, don't we? And we, I mean, it's not just Joe Manchin. It's also Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, you know, a nice purple state down there. And she needs to be careful to keep her constituents happy. So, I, I mean, I understand there are Democrats that are more middle of the road. And, and Joe Manchin, you know, he has said his goal is to have Joe Biden succeed. But there's also certain thresholds that he just does not want to cross. And I guess $15 minimum wage is one of them. I'm interested to see how this plays out with the parliamentarian um, and whether this is going to go through or not, I'll make you a bet right now. I will bet you 1,000 Dogecoin that $11 oh, minimum wage will pass. I'll bet you that. Uh, not man, 15, I, 11. I can't even talk about Dogecoin right now. It's too painful. Oh, I'm sorry, Brandon. I, so that was, I have to publicly apologize for inspiring anyone to buy that trap. I lost money, too. <laughs> it's, it's just, yeah, not good. It's all um, right. That's all right. Um, yeah, I, live and I, learn. I, live and learn. I'm curious to see what happens. Uh, historically, Joe Manchin has been pushed to support things that he originally said he didn't support. So I'm not calling $15 an hour minimum wage dead, but we're just gonna have to wait and see. Okay, we've got one last bullet point, Brandon, and I am so excited to get into this one. Are okay. you ready? Yeah, I'm okay, ready. Okay, okay. What is all it? Right. So, oh man. Okay, all right. <sighs> I just gotta center myself. Okay, so. <laughs> Republicans, okay? There's two parties in this country, Democrat and Republican, right? Republicans have a plan to win big in 2022 and beyond. 
It is an amazing plan. It is a plan so nice, it's worked more than twice. It is a plan so keen, it makes Democrats green. It is a plan so dope, it gives me hope. Oh my God, and the plan has a very simple, simple title. It is called Voter Suppression. Oh, that's not, oh, man. that's not, wait, wait, I got to quote John McCain. That's not change we can believe in. <laughs> Voter suppression. Man, oh, how is it, how is it that this is what it always comes down to? I, I just, uh, it's so incredibly predictable uh, and disappointing. It's like uh, the Democrats have all these things. You can argue about them, you know, on the policy benefits of this, but it's like on the other side, let's prevent people from voting. It's because the Republicans are not willing to jettison the Oath Keeper and Proud Boy section of their party yet. It's because they feel the policies that they push are not actually popular with people. Is it? It's no. as simple as that, isn't it? No, they're not. They're really not. So it's literally the things they do. People do not vote for. Therefore, they do not want certain people to vote. It's actually that simple. It actually is. And I I need to put in a plug again for Mark Elias, who we talked about a lot during the election. I'm still following him and actually subscribe to his newsletter. He's a famous election attorney who is employed by the Democrats in various regions. In fact, he's involved in, in cases, you know, all over the country. And famously, Lou Dobbs, who has since been fired from Fox, at one point on the air raged, well, can't we just give this guy $500 million and get him out of our hair so we can win something in the courts. I mean, Mark, it's just, yeah, forget right and wrong, Lou Dobbs. Like, can't we get this lawyer who represents the Democrats out of our way? I also think so, it's kind of funny that sentiment. It's not like Mark Elias has some like secret information. It's I know, right? It's he's, literally he, the cases he's bringing could be brought by other people. He's just been tenacious about it and is well versed in kind of, the, kind of how the pieces fit together. But this is not some secret genius tricking the courts. It's literally just like <laughs> using common sense to win legal arguments that's all it is yeah it's a it's an attorney who actually has expertise in election law instead of some right. fool talking about hugo chavez programming your election machine that wasn't even running in counties where they said it was running like that's literally okay we don't need to relitigate trump's crappy lawsuits that he lost but so the states of oh these states are going to sound familiar georgia okay. arizona florida iowa they are making evidence-free claims of voter fraud, and they are offering a number—free claim. So they're lying. Yeah, they're lying. Um, and they've got evidence a couple ways. Sounds so healthy, though, doesn't it? You pick up a box of evidence-free <laughs> crackers, you snack on them all night. There's quite a few philosophies going around the internet right now that are completely evidence-free. Um, so here's how they plan to remedy all of this said voter fraud, which, by the way, we just came out of the most litigated election ever. And I don't believe that any actual claims, actual claims of voter fraud were proved. I, I don't believe in any regard. Nothing, that nothing substantive, nothing beyond what we have seen in every election since the beginning of time. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, since dinosaurs were like using punch cards, right? Exactly. To yeah. vote for, and the stegosaurus always would win because just good looking dinosaur it's got oh the plates <laughs> it's a good look so here's what they say they think okay we need to uh, get rid of vote by mail 
in a lot of states because vote by mail is obviously so rife with fraud. I'm looking at you, Oregon, 100% vote by mail. And look, at it's like Republicans never win here. It's obviously evidence of some kind of fraud, right? Like, why are Republicans <laughs> not winning? They're loud enough. They're screaming in the streets. They even invaded the Capitol at one point. Why are they not winning elections, Brandon? Explain that. Okay, they want to limit early voting because that's a great way to get more people involved in the process is, is to limit their ability to vote early so that Folks who are working can't vote easily or people who have, uh, you know, busy lifestyles going on um, or, you know, they've got kids, they've got family, they've got responsibilities. It makes that more difficult. They want to limit absentee voting. Um, this whole idea of this was particularly, I think, in Florida, they were talking about no excuses, absentee voting. Like you can just say, hey, can I vote by mail? They're going to take that away. You got to give me a good reason. You better be throwing up, you know, permanently disabled. You better have a reason to be able to vote from home. Oh, let's limit drop boxes because remember all those stories about drop boxes being infiltrated in the last election and like fake ballots being put in them. I mean, I oh, remember some people yeah. getting mad about it and it not actually being true. Yeah. Oh, I, I remember one case where, um, remember those dudes in Pennsylvania, the, um, proud boys guys that tried to drop fake ballots for Trump. That was the only case. Uh, they tried to drop it off at like the convention center. And then this is like the saddest one. They want to ban early voting on Sunday just just because just to be mean. They just want to ban it on Sunday. It's all about limiting access to the polls. How do you feel about that, Brandon? I think you know how I feel about it. It's it's despicable. <laughs> and particularly the, the limiting voting on Sundays has a a particularly pernicious undercurrent to, to that because mm, it, snap snap in the south and in, in states like georgia you have these events called souls to the polls mm -hmm. where predominantly black churches would encourage their parishioners to vote and you know ostensibly they're not telling them how to vote but they're saying that you ought to vote and making space to do that and so you know predominantly black churches in the south predominantly voting Democrat, right? And so, like, I mean, that's the constituency that um, in, in many political analysts' view brought Joe Biden his victory both in Democratic primary and winning in Georgia, right? And so, um, yeah, all of this, it is, it is very, very disturbing that there is a major political party, one of the two, that literally wants people to have a more difficult time voting, knowing that the people who can vote only on election day and in person, they tend to be more wealthy, they tend to be older, they tend to be whiter, they tend to vote more Republican. They know that, and that is what this is a response to. If, if it were that Republican voters tended to be people that exercise the right to vote by mail and do absentee voting and all that stuff— you would not be seeing any of this. This is literally about trying to suppress votes in order to then win the vote that remains. It should be illegal and it's immoral and it's disgusting. So that's my feeling. Let me it. let me be crystal clear. I'm really glad you went into the history on banning voting on Sunday. And thank you for doing that. There is a group of people in a room somewhere looking at. OK, they're not saying like, oh, well, let's not have black people vote. But they are saying, when do Democrats vote and how can we block that? And it happens to be a voter block, right? It, that is the just the most it's malignant. It's it is disgusting. It's just unbelievable that this is what they're going to continue to work with. This is the way they're going to continue to try and win elections. Now, these things can't guarantee a win, though, right? Like they can limit voting. Um, 
they they thought these runoff elections in Georgia were a lost cause for Democrats. You know, Stacey Abrams and others in Georgia really delivered. There are ways we can fight back against this. Mark Elias is going to be fighting back against a lot of these things in court. But in addition to to these things, you know, Republicans need to continue to turn out their base. It's the only way they can stay competitive. And this explains why you will be hearing Donald Trump's name in the next episode, because he is going to continue to put himself out there. So we've got that to look forward to. Great. Yeah, I, I just I again, like I wish that we could all agree that people exercising their constitutional right to vote is something that ought to be protected and something that we ought to all care about. And I do think that these kinds of issues are those that Democrats both um, locally and nationally should be running on. And I think you and I have talked about it. We need to create a term called voting freedom, and we need to start repeating that to say that my freedom as a patriot, as an American, that I I, I have the right to vote, and that's a freedom that I have. We need to start using language that kind of connects the synapses in people's brains that, you know, because oftentimes Democrats will, frankly, are not super good at messaging stuff out in a way that resonates with people. And so we need to get ahead of this, and we need to be protecting people's right to vote, their ability to vote, to do so safely, to do so in a way that's secure, and to have that be driven by facts and data and not by bullshit. That is what I'd like to see. Yeah, and the Democratic Party needs to go forward, I think, in these next few election cycles, especially, and say, we are the party of democracy. We believe in people having access to voting, to polls, to change their leaders. And that is the issue. Again, I've made this point before. I believe a large swath of the Republican Party has made a conscious decision that they actually do not believe in democracy. That's and true. so those. Yeah. Those people cannot be reasoned with, honestly. And I'm not I'm not trying to say we should, you know, do anything awful to them. But politically, we need to crush them and we're going to need to convince voters to go along with that. But that that viewpoint, that philosophy needs to be utterly decimated from our from our country. Right. That's not OK. We, there, there's a line that that is crossed when you say, I don't believe in certain people voting. That is a line that we we will have to defend. And so going forward, we just need to be upfront about it. We are Democrats are the party of democracy. Yeah. And I I mean, one more thing about the language we use to talk about this. We need to talk about this in the ways, again, that resonate with people to say to avoid the tyranny of government, you know, squashing our individual rights. We need to protect our right and our freedoms, including voting. Like that's the like I, I want to see this kind of language become more common, and that it includes things like vote by mail. It includes absentee balloting, um, absentee ballots, drop boxes, and things of that nature. It's really really important. Um, what is also important is that. You go to rememberpolysci.com. This is a good time to do this, Alex. Oh, yes. It's such a good time. <laughs> I always, I, I'm never quite sure when to just kind of slide into this, but we appreciate you listening. You should go to rememberpolysci.com. That's rememberpolysci.com. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts and tell a friend about the show. We appreciate it. Any last words, Alex, from you? Yeah, I just want everyone out there to know, you know, if you're ever feeling lonely, if you're ever feeling, you know, a little blue and you've Show already me listened to feeling of being <laughs> lonely. Sorry. And, and, you know, you've already listened to the podcast for, for this week. I want to give you Brandon's personal cell phone number. No! I want you to call him 541-82. Give me some dust. <laughs> All right. Oh, my God. Uh, 
Thank you, okay, everybody. Okay, good we'll, job. Yep. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cut, well done. Cut. Cut. Well done. Ted Cruz goes on vacation to Mexico. Then he blames his dog.